I can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. Um, about anything, we can talk about whatever you like, um, Alexi. How long do you want it for? Uh, it's going to be about an hour. Um, when you cut it? When you cut it, when you publish it, how long is it? Probably about an hour. Okay. It's just a conversation and, and the goal is just to get people to see scientists as humans here. So I think conversations do that really well. That's a tall order. <laughs> it's not that tall, man. <laughs> We're not all robots. <laughs> that's true, but we all have Netflix and we watch Hollywood movies. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, those scientists are way more exciting than we are and more handsome and more fascinating and yeah. they seem to have a solution for everything yeah. and they usually do it in five minutes yeah isn't that amazing yeah. and they don't have to wear lab coats in the lab no no that's yeah that's that's unfortunate but yeah i don't think yeah we could try strive to be that exciting i mean look we can be better than that dude from stranger things the do you watch stranger things yes yeah i just watched uh, season two. Oh, did you yeah, it what, was awesome. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It was pretty good. Was there nine se nine episodes this season? Was there or ten? Pardon? Was there nine episodes or ten episodes? I think uh, between nine and eleven. Oh, oh no, nine. It was nine episodes. It was nine. Okay, so so did you feel like you needed a whole round number to make to make it feel complete? <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm like man, I, yeah. It's like when they when they um when they market, they don't they use eleven. You know what I mean? Because it just it's more than ten. For some reason, it's it's like rebellious, but yeah, I, I was I was I, I I guess my OCD kicked in. I'm like, no, I need a whole number. But so this is really interesting. So if you think our civilization has been built in this well, modern civilization for the last few hundred years has been built on this um, number uh, base number being ten, what would be the difference if you know the base was two or three? Yeah. Um, how we would look? What what differences would we have? Right. Uh, would mathematics be easier? Uh, or will it be harder? Um, and why is it 10? Is it because we have 10 fingers? Uh, and the other one fascinating tidbit I heard, which I don't know if it's 100% accurate, is that one reason why the Chinese civilization did not progress so much in mathematics, unlike, for example, the uh, Renaissance Europeans, was that um, they refused to acknowledge the existence of zero, philosophically. They just could not accept that nothingness could be included in an equation. Um, and zero is a very powerful number in mathematics. It's so useful. Um, so it made me wonder, like, our choices as a society can actually influence what knowledge we create. Yeah. Um, and mathematics being, you know, so fundamental to so many in inventions we have, including these microphones and yeah. going to the moon. Um, makes me always wonder. And speaking of the moon, like the idea that you can launch a rocket or a satellite or a space shuttle and you can predict its orbit with all the other objects flying around and you can manipulate it to go exactly where you want it to go within, I don't know, a few meters probably. And if it's a, a satellite, a GPS satellite, make it geostationary and just 
control what you wanted to do. It's amazing if you think about the yeah. science that has to go in. Yeah, and and the maths that has to go in. You know, um, I I remember watching a documentary and I had no idea, but when I first learned that satellites use general relativity, you know, and I thought, wow, like it's I've I'm a biochemist by training, but like I'm fascinated by physics, and one thing that physics, you know, the the language that they use to describe nature and, and the universe is maths, you know, and and it's really precise, as you as you as you said, you know, you can make these predictions, really accurate predictions. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, even besides maths, there's language as well, right? The way we communicate, the words we use, the way we structure um, uh, our language can also affect how we think about, for instance, the Chinese. Um, so they think about time differently to how we think about it. So in, in, in English, time is at the fourth dimension is explicit. I'll see you at 12 o'clock in so-and-so place, right? In Chinese, it's not so explicit. It's more implicit. So it's not at the forefront of their, of their thinking. And so this actually, they've shown that it affects their spending and their saving um, um, behavior. So Chinese people tend to save more because they don't feel disconnected from the future. So it's not an explicitly, um, it's not explicitly different to the time they're in right now. Whereas in our language, in, in, in English, because we're constantly emphasizing the fourth dimension, you know, we dis we feel disconnected. And so that psychologists think affects how we, we, we actually spend and save. I wonder if this can also work in weight management. You know, I'm going to start a diet tomorrow. And then you don't start a diet. <laughs> oh, you know, my doctor told me I need to cut down on red meat. I'm going to start doing that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Time, mathematics, zeros, language, everything has created a society that we are part of. Mm. And we cannot really change it, right? I mean, we don't have a choice. We, mm. We're here. Um, and it has completely formed our way of thinking. And you know this, um, what's the name of the philosophers that try to basically consider that a lot of the science that we do, a lot of the facts that we present are actually relative to our social... David Hume? Um, yeah, I can't remember. Um, I should know David Hume because I was in Edinburgh for five years. Um, in a way? Edinburgh, where he oh, was based. Edinburgh. Oh. Yeah, so David Hume was an atheist um, who was refused lectureships professorships in the, in the university back then wow because you he couldn't was, you couldn't be an atheist no and God a professor no. teaching kids about no. nothingness hey um, even though we've just proven nothingness <laughs> makes gps satellites <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah so how much of the knowledge we create is relative to our society and how much of the knowledge we create will work even in an alien planet and i think what we might call us hard sciences might be more likely to work in another planet. So physics, chemistry, a lot of the biology, probably hmm. um, anything that I guess is molecular, definitely. I don't know about the top-down ones, um, but um, it makes me wonder what kind of universe or what kind of society we'd be living in um, if we could love... Hmm. I wonder what kind of society we would live in if we had more plurality, we, if we were more accepting towards all the points of views. Hmm. Um, and this is what terrifies me with this new 21st century um, 
positions to the extremes, the political positions to the extremes, uh, the lack of tolerance, the lack of um, other points of view mm. um, in, in both aspects. If, even the moderates not taking on board that some of the extremists are actually just, for example, terrified about something. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously their actions are terrible, mm. but their reasonings, you know, they're afraid about something mm-hmm. and clearly our moderate politicians are not willing to take that on board mm. until it's too late. Mm. And then they go and they overreach and they, you know, they, they, s- they go too much to the right or too much to the left. Mm. Um, and it's pretty scary as a scientist to look at um, uh, trying to predict how, what kind of society we're going to be able to form in a few years when there's so much intolerance. Mm. Um, and that, that's so true. I mean, uh, there's a term, I, I'm not sure if it was Majid Nawaz or Sam Harris, that he, he calls it the regressive left. Like you become so liberal where you start oppressing those who have a different opinion. So if you're all the way on the left... A centimeter to the right is considered too far right, right? And I think what I, what's happening, at least what I see on YouTube and, and when I, like these protests, people are forming groups. And if you're not within that group, you're the other. And then you become subhuman. And then it's, it's, it's okay to punch you. It's okay to be violent towards you, not to listen to you. And it really stifles discourse, doesn't it? Um, there's, there's a thing called punch Nazi. Have you heard of punch Nazi? No, tell me about oh, it. Oh, God. So, uh, you know, the alt-right in America, for instance, they have just like Mario... What's his name? Uh, God damn it. I forgot his name. Breitbart? Publication? Uh, no, there's a, there's a gentleman. Uh, something Yenonopoulos. Uh, oh, um, yes. Yanopoulos, I think. Yeah, I forget his uh, his first name, but he's that like the the blonde haired dude who just says ridiculous stuff. Um, Very effervescent. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and so uh, yeah, so there's a whole alt right movement where they they say ridiculous things, they troll, but then uh, on the flip side of that, there's a whole like leftist liberal movement where they. I'm not sure if you heard of the Antifa, anti-fascists, essentially. They do essentially what the alt-right does, but they just use violence. And so there was a girl actually who was wearing like a, a, a hat that said make Bitcoin great again, not make America great again, but this was a Bitcoin hat. And and one of these Antifa, these anti-fascist leftist groups, one of them came and punched her in the head thinking that she was a quote-unquote Nazi because they thought that she was a supporter of Trump, she had a red hat and blah, blah, blah. And that scares me. Because he, people are now seeing each other as subhuman because they simply don't belong in the same group. And rather than having open dialogue and, and, and discussing and arguing and, and like respectful arguing because this is a, a, a war of ideas. But people don't want to do that. Instead, it's an echo chamber and they just want to fight against each other. And anyone who doesn't agree with them, they already become, they immediately become the other. And, yeah. When I was doing uh, my PhD in Germany, one of my my flatmate at one of the times was a sociologist so he was doing his phd in uh, sociology and he was looking at the um, concept of group and group identity and the idea was that you actually feel better if you're part of a group Mm -hmm. and if you and you feel better if there's others Mm -hmm. and his research was in the context of the european union and he was theorizing that the presence of a federated European Union would be better than uh, a unified Europe where there is no states. 
because everyone needs to belong somewhere. Mm. So I was Greek. I felt I should have been Greek in the European Union. Well, to be honest, me personally, I would have felt better to be a European national and not have my Greekness uh, as, a, as a label. Mm -hmm. But he was saying that for most people, that inner group label uh, is kind of... Um, Go ahead, sorry. Necessary. Yeah. Um, so he was suggesting that the inner group label was necessary for our society to function. We all need to belong to a group. Mm. And I wish people could think about it a bit more. So you say that someone is an anti-fascist, they can go punch someone that makes them even more of an anti-fascist. I think people are people and some of them are violent mm -hmm. and there will be violent people in all sides. Mm. Um and it's a shame that the media can then describe a particular stereotype in a certain way. So even the Trump supporters, mm -hmm. they can be described as violent in some uh, some of the media, and the the punks and the anti-fascists could be described as violent. But in reality, just humans, mm -hmm. just a proportion of humans are, are violent, and that's I think that's the problem. Uh, if we could corral those people away from the discourse and create safe spaces where we can have discussions and we can have rules for those discussions. And philosophy has allowed for that to actually occur. So we actually have rules of how discourse is meant to happen. Mm. Um, and the famous Michael Gove from Britain who said, you know, uh, I, think some people are, uh, I think people are tired of the experts, so you should just vote for us instead. Um, that's exactly the antithesis of what we should be doing. Mm. Um, we definitely need people to be highly educated in discourse. Mm -hmm. um, we need them to understand where other people are coming from yeah. and also to understand that um, sometimes reality is objective and sometimes reality is subjective. Yeah. For example, um, what course, what, what should you study at the university? Um, should you be driven your choices by market forces? Mm. Should you be driven by your heart? Should you be driven by uh, who is a good uh, teacher at high school? Mm. What will allow you to decide what to do? Mm. So that's kind of subjective reality. Um, however, if we have to decide, for example, um, on what should the interest rate be for, uh, for banks, mm. that should be more of an objective decision even though it's driven by by subjectivity by subjective yeah. people it's driven it's, it's supported by objective data mm -hmm. um, so we have to sit down and decide what kind of society we want and then create some rules on how it will happen and then the funny thing is society is because there's so such diversity in people right so no one is 100% right and no one is 100% wrong but imagine if you could have these communities Let's, let's pick Australia as a continent and a country, and let's say there's all these communities and they're allowed to have their own societies. Mm -hmm. And there's a freedom of movement between those societies. Even when you're young, you're not bound by your parents' wishes when you're like, I don't know, let's, let's say 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Let's pick a number for the sake of it. And you could choose what kind of society you could live in. Uh, would these societies be more stable if you were surrounded by people like you? Uh, intellectually, mentally, uh, psychologically, and philosophically? Or will those societies be more sterile and they will die off because this lack of diversity makes them less resilient? Like, you know, something happens. Um, uh, let's say that there is all these really clever, kind of happy, hippie people sitting in um, the Sunshine Coast and they're enjoying surfing. Mm. And then there's 
um, I don't know, a big um, uh, a big wave destroys a lot of their property and they don't really know how to rebuild. Mm. They're a bit lazy, so they're just going to sit on the beach. Uh, versus having a society that's more mixed, which will have you know some more aggressive people that will say, okay, let's rebuild now, and this is what we need to do, and everyone else will just listen to them and they'll decide. So I've been thinking, should we create societies that are more homogeneous and everyone feels better about themselves, mm. or should we strive for societies that are more diverse and therefore more resilient in different environmental settings? It's it's interesting. You bring up two points before I because this would be a good segue because what, what you just said is very analogous to um, biodiversity in an ecosystem, right? So um, should we have more diverse species because it uh, confers resistance to stresses that may the environment might bring, or should we have homogeneous like monocrops in like farms where if a certain bug comes, it will wipe everything out? That's interesting. But you brought up two points earlier about like uh, people wanting to be in a group, wanting to belong in a group and how important that is. I mean, that's almost been like, uh, it's it's been like bred into us because of evolution. You know, we're social creatures and, and it's weird because if, if, if we do something and, and people don't accept it, we feel terrible. Like, oh no, like I feel guilt. I feel like... I've done something really bad and that's there to stop us from you know being learners because if we're learners we die we don't have a tribe that can you know back us up there's no safety net at all um but the other point you, you brought up about um groups and about this particularly uh, i was listening to a podcast called uh, waking up by sam harris and he had this professor on talking about how people become extremists and it's interesting because when you create an echo chamber so if they've they did research where they had a group of like people on different political uh, spectrums. So they had liberal people um, who were in a conference. And what happens is that when everybody hears the same sort of argument, so if you hear all the four arguments and no against arguments, it's very easy to slide down that extremist slide, right? Because no one's getting checked. And slowly everyone... Uh, like so one per one person might push the board a little bit and everyone feels comfortable because first of all nobody wants to say hey no no i don't think i don't agree with that because they don't want to get kicked out from the group they don't want people looking at them weird they want to belong right and so once the envelope is pushed and the next person pushes in the next but and then you come to a point where you can just punch people in the head for not agreeing with you or you can just block them or you can just block them and not listen to them um yeah, but going back to, I, I suppose, let's talk about a bit about your journey. I mean, I, I love this conversation so far, but let's talk about um, how you got into what you got because uh, I, I think that'd be fascinating. We can talk about other stuff as well, but let's, you mentioned your PhD, but how about we just start with what you do um, and then we can start with um, how you decided to get into what you've you got into essentially yeah so i'm a research lecturer at the hawkesbury institute for the environment where we look at the effects of biotic and abiotic stresses so basically stresses that are caused by the environment and they can be things like heat and cold and uh, lack of water or co2 emissions um, co2 in the atmosphere sorry mm. um, or it could be biotic so it could be other organisms so, for example, a disease or a bacterium or a symbiont, something that helps you. And we're looking at how organisms respond to those stresses as an institute. Uh, and we're about 50 people that are 
um, that have PhDs, and we have about another 50 that are studying for their PhD. Wow. So they are scientists in training. Wow. Um, and the institute was built about six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the HIE. This is the yeah Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment. Yeah, we call it HIE. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the main institutes of the Western Sydney University. So it's kind of considered the kind of the flagship in terms of outcomes. Um, and we and we are quite diverse on what kind of tools and what kind of disciplines we come from. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you can have an ecologist. You can have people that do modeling, so they kind of use mathematics. Mm-hmm. You can have people that are um, mycologists, so they work with fungi. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that work on physiology of trees or mm-hmm. physiology of animals. And you have some geneticists, of which I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm also basically using a lot of computers. So my discipline is called genome bioinformatics, which okay. basically means I look at DNA data or protein data mm-hmm. or other RNA data. So basically DNA research. And then I use computers to make, um, to make sense of them uh, for particular science questions. Usually resistance to stress, um, heat, cold, insecticide resistance, um, etc. And that's what I'm doing at the moment in Australia. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different. So there's a lot of different approaches. So you're doing um, bioinformatics. You mentioned that you know there's ecologists. Why is there? Do you, it, it seems very interdisciplinary. Multi, let's call it multidisciplinary. Multidisciplinary, yeah. I should say. Um, I guess interdisciplinary would be more if we worked in the interfaces of those things. Yeah. What we try to do is we try to approach a problem from multiple angles mm-hmm. and use multiple tools in order to understand what's happening. And the really amazing thing about the HI is that it's extremely collaborative. Um, I've been to a few universities. I've been to more than five nations that I've worked in. Uh, I've seen how other places work mm-hmm. and the HIE is one of the most collaborative places I've been uh-huh. so you can literally just knock on someone's door walk in have a conversation about their project yeah. and ask them how can I help you or vice versa you have a problem and you need some help and you say do you have any time to chat yeah and it's um, very different for example from America um, where you can have people competing in the same corridor okay. uh, you can have two people hired as assistant professors only one of them is going to become permanent and they know that, so they're competing, for the, sometimes for the same science question as well. Um, and that is hard if you think about all these people are funded by taxpayers' money. Mm. Um, ultimately, we want science to progress. Mm. And maybe competition is something that will make us wake up mm-hmm. and strive for more. But I think the excitement of working as a team, the excitement of discovery with a group of people, um, and, you know, you can still have your recognition um, and that excitement of working as a team is, I think, far more cost effective. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, sci- the, the science is such a collaborative thing that, you know, if, if you're some lone genius, I mean, Isaac Newton's probably like the most, uh, he's an exception where he just locked himself up in a room and then boom, he came up with calculus and all these laws, <laughs> Isaac, laws of motion. But... Everyone else, uh, nothing great has ever been accomplished in isolation. I mean, all the great scientists that you 
that you hear about, like Einstein, um, Feynman, whoever they are, it's, it was they were never by themselves. It's always in collaboration with other great scientists and a, a bunch of research students that no one heard of, you know, and technical officers that no one heard of, and um, so it's 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 super important. And um, c competition is good in the sense that it can, you know. That's very important. I mean, you see that in, in scientific conferences, people trying to like cut each other. And, and that's, I think that's, it's, it's a bit like philosophy, right? So if you don't test each other, if you don't argue, if you don't like go head to head, then you don't really know what, what the... Uh, as long as it's respectful. As long as, as, it's, as, long respectful. as it's rules that we obey, yeah. which unfortunately scientists don't get any training in. <laughs> and that's one of the things we try to change with our... Uh, um, new PhD and master students is try to educate them about how you debate, how do you disagree. Mm. Um, it's very different in some countries where you're not allowed to disagree with your professor. Mm. Um, you're not allowed to say an opinion that is uh, different Con yeah. than the group. Um, whereas here we actually encourage it. We encourage the discussion. We encourage the, um, the disagreements to be yeah. voiced. Uh, and we acknowledge that sometimes no one is going to be right. Maybe the truth is out there. Yeah. Um, I will. Ha I, I should say that there is a myth about Newton working alone. I think really? that's the. I think that's the consequence of very good marketing on his behalf. Okay. Tell I me mean, he was an amazing politician. Um, he 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 totally was um, very good with patronage, royal, royal patronage. But you know, people like Leibniz and other people will disagree that Newton was working in isolation. Mm -hmm. He was definitely very liberally taking other people's ideas ah. and, and moving them forward. But one thing I do remember from another uh, book was that he did like to lecture by himself to himself. <laughs> so he will have an auditorium and he'll be just lecturing to an empty hall, wow. uh, oblivious or not caring. Um, so definitely autistic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some issues, definitely. Definitely some issues. No, but, but I think gravity and the theory of gravity will have ha happened with, without... With one particular person. Um, I think progression in science happens as a consequence of society being ready and supporting it. Yeah. Uh, we do not need any one particular individual. And that makes me think about the Nobel Prize. I think the Nobel Prize was, well, there's two things of it. One, it was created because, I don't know if you remember, but um, Alfred Nobel was um, uh, um, advertised as being dead by a newspaper, falsely. Mm -hmm. So he hadn't died, but people thought he did. So there was an obituary. And basically they call him a merchant of death because of his dynamites. And then he said, oh my God, maybe I should you know, do something to clean up my reputation because I am going to die soon. So I might as well have a nice reputation. And that's why he created the Nobel Prize. Ah. Um, but today the Nobel Prize, I think, is not so much as to honor any one individual. It's more about p publicizing uh, science to a large audience to to the world that mm. science is useful and it's important mm. and it's a fantastic marketing to get people to think of how important science is how science is done and mm. that it takes sometimes decades to actually come with something useful mm. uh, what we do today may not be seen for 20 years as having this impact mm. and that's what we call fundamental science mm. And since I came to Australia, my science has really shifted to something different, not so fundamental, has shifted to outcomes that are more obvious within three or five years. Mm. Uh, and that's because of a, our type of government that's been forcing us to walk into those right. short-term gains. Um, so, so were you working more like basic research? 
Um, so what what did you do? I mean, yeah. So also say before I came to Australia, I was in University of Exeter, and before that in the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology, oh. and before that in the University of Edinburgh. And one of the main research areas I was working on is the evolution of color patterns in butterflies. Okay. Um, so you want to grab that butterfly over there? Yeah, I'll just put it on your web camera. So, so that's, a, that's a wing pattern of a butterfly. Uh, it, this one has mainly yellow and you know, there's these veins here and then you have some white spots here. Uh, this is not the butterfly I was working on. This is just the butterfly I found in an airport in Shenzhen. Um, but uh, the idea was I was looking at how these different um, compartments of the butterfly wings uh, got colored and how this development of color actually evolved over time. I was not the lead researcher there. I was, as a bioinformatician, as a genomicist, I was essentially creating the capability that allow other more basic scientists to look into this. But what we discovered is that you can have multiple species evolving the same mechanism in the same way, because there's very few ways that nature could ac accomplish that. Um, so the way structures evolve sometimes is very limited. There's only a few ways you can do it. Mm. Another thing we looked at is that um, selection. So how things become the way they become because of natural selection uh, can be so effective that it can maintain, for example, a particular color in a particular area very, very strongly. And even if you have mixing, genetic mixing, so even if you have two uh, species in inverted commas, um, so uh, hybridizing, um, so you can have offspring for those children, their traits that are important into their local environment will be very strongly selected for. Mm. So genes and genetic content and DNA content will shuffle for everything except the things that are really important for the local environment. So it's conserved. Only those particular parts of the DNA will be conserved. Everything else will get shuffled randomly. Right. Um, I mean, if we had to think about, for example, imagine that there was a dictatorship and in Northern Australia, everyone who had red hair was allowed and everyone who had red hair in, say, in Tasmania was not allowed. Mm. And people were allowed to move. There was a lot of trade. Uh, but basically, you went to jail if you had the wrong kind of hair. Yeah, yeah. So everything, our eye colors, our skin colors, our um, other attributes would just get shuffled except mm. our red hair uh, or the lack of. So, so tell me, what, would, what sort of selective pressure would a butterfly experience um, for it to, to conserve that, that, that color or that pattern? So there's two very strong selection mechanisms in this particular scenario. One is that they um, recognize each other as being the right type uh, through vision. So there's a long-range chemical pheromone that they detect, but in, in when it comes closer, it's actually um, the different colors of the butterfly. That's how they recognize uh, the person that they should mate with. Mm. So the particular color pattern is very, very strongly associated with basically mating. Mating, okay. And there are some experiments that one of my master supervisors did when he was younger, where he basically colored real butterflies or rubbed them off or put fake butterflies with different colors. And he could prove that this assortative mating, as we call it, so mating with the same 
color or particular color will actually was significant was happening the the question is however why would they pick for one particular color mm. turns out that these particular butterflies are toxic so if a bird which is the major predator in south america for these butterflies these heliconius butterflies eats them the bird will not die but it will start vomiting and it will get very upset and the more butterflies it eats the more violently sick it will become and more often so it eventually learns to avoid this butterfly and the way it learns it is by recognizing those colors so if you take a bird from a particular area and you give it a local butterfly it will avoid it because it has learned from previous experience but if you give it a same species of butterfly but different colors it will not recognize it as being toxic oh. so there's a very strong selection for that region to have one particular color and therefore that's how the mating recognition has also happened for that particular um, uh, color. Now, if you go to another region, for example, down the Andes, so a few hundreds of kilometers south, the same species of butterfly will have evolved different colors, completely due to chance. What the color pattern is, it doesn't matter what the particular pattern is, mm. as long as it's one pattern mm -hmm. and there's not very much variation. Mm. And then it, it, and it's colorful enough or it's present enough that the birds can, can see it. Mm. So this is not camouflage. This is the opposite of camouflage. This is advertising mm -hmm. your um, toxicity. If you could just close that. Yeah, thank you. Yep. So you advertise your toxicity. You advertise that there's an illness here that causes illness, so please avoid me. Mm. Uh, and we call it aposematism. Um, so that was the main research I was involved in in Europe. Um, so just just on, on this point, um, it can be any color as long as that association is made with the bird and, and the toxicity of the butterfly, then boom, it's set in. It can be any color that within the developmental constraints. So for example, you will not have a blue butterfly in this particular species. You will have red, yellow, white, black. Right. These are the colors that that particular species will show. Right. Um, and would there be uh, some colors that... I'm not sure if this would even make sense, but um, easier to produce certain pigments that would be easier to produce. And so there'd be uh, a higher probability of selecting those colors. Um, so, yeah, so definitely there is, so different colors get laid at different times. Uh, so they're different, they're caused by different biochemical pathways, so homochromes and other, and melanin. Um, but uh, which pattern evolved when, I can't really say if it happened because it was easier. Okay. Uh, I think it's more due to random chance. Right. Um, so it just happened that particular genes were switched on in this particular population. Right. And it laid the colors at a particular times on development in a particular way. Mm. And that got selected for. Mm. And what we found was actually this... DNA regions that were important actually are very few. There's very specific ones. Um, and most of them are regulatory. So basically they control whether a gene is switched on, switched off, and exactly when it gets switched on and off and by how much. So it's basically the administration system that actually decides how things look like rather than um, the actual um, the, the the colors itself. Yeah. So th does that mean that the butterflies might have all the other colors there, but the administration is selectively expressing a certain color? The capacity is certainly still there, uh, and 
my old groups, um, uh, the professors have actually shown recently that you can actually manipulate a butterfly to express a color that it shouldn't be having, um, genetically manipulated. Right. But um, yeah, so the capacity is usually there um, when it comes to genes, mm. but the timing of the expression is different. So the the administration system is different. Okay. That's interesting. So, but when did you do this type of research? Was this for your honors or masters? So that was I did a back then we didn't have uh, so I was in Europe. So in Europe we don't have something called honors like you do here. We don't do one year research. We do um, exams and six months of research. And I was in Scotland, so it was a four year degree. So this you do in your fourth year. Mm. Um, and what I did was for my honors I did something different. So we can call that honors. Mm -hmm. uh, but then after doing a bit of backpacking and traveling in the Balkans, I came back to the same university and I did a, uh, basically I knocked on doors. I literally knocked on doors asking if they have a job uh, or if they have any interest in taking on as a volunteer and maybe I could get the equivalent of Centrelink money. Mm. And, you know, lo and behold, actually one person actually said, yeah, that'd be fantastic. I, you know, he was a young professor um, starting out and he had lots of experiments to do and lots of work to do and he was very excited and nice. So he took me in and then he said, oh, you should talk to this other guy because um, he does genomics um, and it would be fantastic if you could learn a lot of that. So I mm. go to the other guy and he's a bit of an alternative kind of left-wing kind of hippie mm. uh, person. He says, yeah, absolutely, yes, but there's no way I'll let you work for free because that devalues science. So they were willing to pay me. Oh, nice. Which was really nice. Um, and then, and that I worked as a technician. But at the end of the day, I was writing a thesis as well. I decided to write everything I did on that year as a thesis and submit it mm. for a degree. And that kind of gave me a master's of research. So, uh, so, one sec. So you came back from your backpacking trip you started working for free and volunteering. Uh, got paid, actually. Eventually Not very much money. Eventually no, getting was a, paid? Oh, the same week. Oh, the I same week. Okay, well, wow. So the same week, uh, the second professor said, I can definitely pay oh. you. Um, it turned out that it came from the wrong pot of money, so it shouldn't have happened because they were not allowed to pay salary from that pot of money, but eventually got worked out. Right. And I think they got good work out of me, so they definitely got a paper in a Q1, nice. like a um, first-year general yeah. uh, during my master's. So, but no, you weren't enrolled into anything specific. No. So, no. your work as a you said technical officer. I. So it, this is two thousand and four, and back then we didn't have the Bologna agreements. We didn't have this. The universities were not forced to obey universal rules. Um, so basically, I literally I, I don't know what my title was. I was working. I was, I was a scientist. Okay. I was doing research right. and I was and, very happy to do it. Right. And that research after, was it a year or? Yeah, it was one year and the project was designed with me. Mm. Um, so I wasn't told every day what to do. They just told me this is the thing we're looking at. These are the techniques. Uh, can I go and do it? Yeah. And 50% of that, so the bioinformatic part, the computer part, I had to figure out by myself. Right. Um, and then I realized I want to do a PhD, mm -hmm. but I was Greek. Uh, and I was in, in the UK and at the time I had all the privileges of a European citizen uh, because that was the European Union rules still are but except one which is the PhD scholarships were only allowed if you're British which eventually turns out that the court case 
overruled that, but it was too late for me. But at the time, I was not really allowed to get funding, public funding for, for a PhD. So I decided to go to Germany. But in Germany, you require a master's. You, even back then, even in 2004, you required a master's. Mm-hmm. And that's why I basically took all my work, wrote it up, uh, went to the university and said, if I give you a thesis and would you give me a degree? And they said, yeah, if you give us £3,000, we'll assess your thesis and determine if it's worthy of a degree. So I got a distinction for that thesis. Beautiful. Obviously, paid them three thousand pounds, and I got a piece of paper that allowed me to go to Germany and say, "Look, I got this piece of paper. Would you be interested in hiring me?" And in Germany, they don't care what your nationality is. Like the public funding for science is very different. They basically care who who you are and what you want to do, hmm. like what your skill set is and what what's your science. Yeah. Um, and they, yeah. So I went to the Max Planck Institute and they said, "Yep, you fit the criteria." Um, Here's your budget. See you next year. And I worked with a very intelligent professor, uh, David Heckel. I, like he, the guy has a uh, a brain the size of a planet, and he can do anything from architecture to zoology. He, the guy is just so um, homo universalis. It was just amazing. Unfortunately, however, he also had ten students. I was one of the first ones to come in, but within months we got. He he probably had ten, eleven students. And there were senior postdocs in the group, but the ones that were affiliated with me moved on within six months. So within six months of my arrival, arrival they had basically found permanent positions elsewhere. Right. So I was by myself, and I would basically meet David once a year. And he would meet all his students once a year and you know, have a conversation for an hour or two and then move on. And that's classic... Uh, you know, uh, uh, sick or swim. So either you succeed right. and you've done really well or you don't succeed and then uh, tough. It was an investment that wow. didn't work out. On the other hand, you did have complete freedom and if you did ask for help, you will receive it, yeah. uh, like technical help and you had a budget that was your budget. Uh, so I had a credit card that I could buy stuff. Um, so it was. It's very, very different from the Australian system, which some professors use as basically um, as as labor. The professor already knows what the project is, mm. and they will have to decide who to hire, and then they tell the person, you know, here's right. the project to do. Um, That's interesting. You know, um, your experience. Your experiences kind of remind me of my masters. I mean, I have a really cool supervisor. He's a little like he gives us a lot of freedom so he you know other places might have like this is the protein that we're interested in sequencer blah 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 blah. and by the time you finish your masters these are the outcomes you want for us it's like okay here's your project um go research it and like choose a direction and find something interesting and he was always there when i needed help like if i was lost i'm like ah i'm freaking out but it was very hands-off and very very much sink or swim um because yeah but i think that there's a lot of value in that in that you know there's there were times where i felt like oh my god i'm just gonna sink like this project is shit it's not going anywhere um i should just drop it and just leave and i'm like ah but as soon as you get out of that you actually make something out of your thesis you're like oh yeah i got a good outcome then you know you can do that and if you have moments like that in the future you know that you can rely on yourself and you don't need someone to hold your hand to walk you through that challenge so to overcome the challenge i think what is often forgotten at least in australia uh, the system does not award your degree a master's or a phd because of your results 
they award you uh, because of your methods and your dedication to the work. Mm. So even if you find, you know, even if all your chapters are negative results, you mm. basically found nothing of significance mm. that advances that particular aim that you had originally. Um, even though, you know, brackets, we can talk about negative results and their value, oh, yeah. which can be very valuable. But you don't get a PhD or a degree or a master's of research because you have found something. It's because you've learned something. Mm. Um, and it's a very valuable way of you know, what your professor was doing is a very valuable way of learning mm. um, because it also builds confidence at the end oh, yeah. um, if you succeed. What I'm a bit worried about this system and what I was really upset was the effect it has on your mental well-being. Uh, if you're not a particular kind of personality, it could destroy you. Mm. It could actually make you say, okay, this is not working. It's all because of me. Mm. Um, and very likely, 70% of the time, it would be you. Yeah. And, you know, many of the times your professor, if they knew what you were doing, they could have corrected you. Mm. And then, you know, she could have said, you know, this is what you need to do instead mm. and fix the problem in, in a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, it's just that... Um, you didn't have that um, interaction, so you don't do it. Um, and that that could be a problem. So I think the best way of supervising somewhere in the middle, so the way we kind of try to supervise students in my, um, in my environment um, is give them the freedom to innovate, mm. but meet them once a week mm. and have a conversation about what's happening. Mm. Um, you don't shoot down their ideas, but if they have problems, you challenge them to think mm. what that might problem is. And if you already know what the solution is, you just tell them. Mm. Um, there is no reason why you should expect expect them to find that by themselves. Mm. Um, so I think that's the better way of doing supervision. But it's, again, really hard for some people. Some people just don't want to think. Mm. They just don't want to innovate. They're just extremely technically good. Um, so then your PhD supervision tactic has to change and basically mm. tell them okay so you have no ideas how about you do this one yeah and then they go off and do it um a third type of PhD student is the opposite which is they're too creative for their own good right. they will come to you and they'll say i want to do this and then next week they say oh, i decided to do this instead or oh, i decided to do that instead and sometimes they will try to do something and because technically they're not very good at it right yet because they don't know or because they just don't have the patience they, they don't succeed, so they think the idea was bad, even though it wasn't. They just haven't persevered. So how do you work with these people? How do you encourage them to be successful? Mm. Um, so teaching them perseverance can be, um, can be tricky. And the way I think it's the best way to work with that kind of personality type is actually partner them up with someone who is very technically good. Uh, yeah. And here comes this concept of PhDs as an individual exercise versus PhDs as a teamwork. Mm. And I honestly believe that teamwork is the most important thing for science to progress. And I wish our PhD students could work as a team mm. or could be hired in teams. Um, so, you know, have, for example, two PhD scholarships starting together. I think that's far more efficient and effective than having this sole um, scholar in inventing and innovating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, my, my colleague, Alex Ray, who you do the podcast with, um, like a lot of the problems that I solved in my master's was through dialogue with him. 
because he works on a similar project but he's looking at dna specifically and we're using the same technique and if it wasn't for him uh, and, and the discussions that we'd have I, I would have probably not even figured out anything and and like science happens through dialogue and discourse and in collaboration as, as we mentioned earlier so i totally agree with you um so you worked at the max planck institute you, you did your phd there did you say what were you lo- researching so my phd did a few things it took me five years to do it and i think i was one of the first ones to come out i was definitely the first ones of david's direct supervision i think i was the third one in the department mm. to manage to finish um and five years is normal in germany it's normal in america as well Hmm. um and part of the reason was five is because i had this much freedom i could try to check different things so i was for example interested in the evolution of sex chromosomes Uh, my professor at the time was interested in uh, identifying the genes that determine behavior Uh, and thank god i didn't do that Um, so i thought about doing that and realized how much work it is Mm. um and sat down and thought really hard probably was halfway through my second year of whether this would get me a job and this was just at the edge of the revolution in dna sequencing technologies it was just the very first year of these things was happening so 2006 um and then i realized that if i want to move forward i need to do something that differentiates me Mm. Uh, i could focus on something that's you know fascinating scientifically uh, or I could move forward with something that's technically fascinating. Mm. So I decided to become more of a methods person. So um, innovating in the area of transcriptomics was my gene expression and gen- genome assembly, gene expression, that kind of area. And databases, so the interface of IT and biology. So this is all back at the cusp of what bioinformatics was happening. Right. And intellectually, I was always interested in the the basic science of, you know, where, where, where is a gene located? What does it do? Mm. Um, but I realized that if I want to answer those questions, I need to have my own group mm. or belong to a group that answers those questions. Uh, it's not something that one person could do. So, f- for example, um, the, the butterfly one was really easy, for example. So you just look at the butterfly and you say, okay, it's yellow and black. You write that in, a, in, a, in an Excel spreadsheet. But if you look in a behavior, mm how do you determine if the insect decided to go left or right or you just try to edge to the left and then decide to edge to the right because right. of a particular odor, for example, or yeah. particular um, diet. So these are very hard experiments to do and you need to have massive amounts. Or, for example, if you have to do a growth curve of this insect, you basically have to take the larva, the caterpillar, and weigh them every few days. <laughs> Hundreds of them. Oh, my God. Um, so um, if you have critical mass, you can do these kinds of experiments and it's sure. amazing. And at the end of the day, you might be a very, very good scientist on this particular skill, but so will be hundreds of other people. Mm. So I decided to kind of develop bioinformatics as, as my main core discipline. Uh, the Max Planck budget that I used was mostly for traveling. Mm. So I managed to meet a lot of people and um, we did a lot of training. So tried to educate other people how to do their analysis and bioinformatic analysis. This is back then. Um, 2006, 2007, that next generation was just coming out. And and that's basically the, the way I've moved forward my science. Mm. I was trying to 
acquire a lot of knowledge and was learning a lot of things. Mm. But when it came to my day-to-day job, it was more about data integration rather than doing any particular experiments. So that started about halfway through my, my PhD when I made that choice, when I switched away from being in the lab, in the right. wet lab, and went into the computer space. Computer. So what questions were you trying to answer? I mean, you mentioned a few, but which ones did you specifically focus on? Oh, good question. Um, there were insecticide resistance was definitely one of them. Um, so tell us about that. To tell you about insecticide resistance. So yeah. Uh, so insecticide resistance as a field in general is uh, probably one of the most well-studied um, natural selection uh, mechanisms. Um, we just published a paper last month on that, so I'm still continuing that line of research. But um, the idea of um, an organism in the environment that gets challenged by, in this case, a toxin mm-hmm. or any other environmental factor, biotic or abiotic, the idea is that some individuals will be able to survive mm-hmm. and they'll be resistant and other individuals would die or become less fit. So they will have less uh, less children. Now, put you, you can see this whole thing through the... F- uh, lens of probability. So it's not that there's no, uh, so there's a bit of randomness. So some individuals will survive and they have a probability of surviving because they have adapted and the individuals that uh, will be killed, they haven't adapted, they have a probability that they will die, which mm-hmm. is higher than the other ones. And the amount of selection that you put, so that the force that the environment forces this change to happen, the penalty if you fail, basically, or the, the the benefits if you succeed is very high mm. because basically you spray insecticide. Mm. Uh, so it's a very visible form of selection that you can immediately track. Mm. Um, it turns out that, uh, in this case, particularly insects, can evolve this resistance very quickly and they evolve it in one or two genes. So they only need one change for this to happen. Mm. It happens really quickly. There is no gradual resistance. It just happens um, quite quickly. And there's a limited number of options that uh, nature has given them to become resistant. Um, And the best way to find what those options are, well, there's a couple of ways. One is to do the experiment in the lab where you try to select them for that insecticide resistance. And that's what my professor was doing for his work when he was... um, uh, a research scientist instead of a Max Planck director. Mm. And he was looking at, uh, for example, a cadherin, which is a, a protein that is involved in BT resistance in mm. Helicovapor major, that cotton bollworm, one of the biggest pests in Australia and the world. Um, and he found that this particular gene is causing resistance, but when they tried to find it in the field, it didn't exist as, as a resistance gene. Uh, in the field, resistance had evolved in a different way. Ah. So you could do it in the lab, but Sometimes it may not be useful because in, in nature we'll have something else. Right. And so could you identify those different, you said there's only a number of uh, pathways that they could actually build resistance. So you could use bioinformatics to potentially identify that? So that's the second way of doing it. I will have said biochemistry and bioinformatics or biochemistry through bioinformatics. So the second way of doing it is actually to sit down and understand the basic science of how a toxin acts and then try to predict what would be the easiest way for a pathway to evolve resistance. For example, will it be an adhesion of the toxin into the gut or it could be the 
metabolism of the toxin to be to make it more active. Mm. So this BT toxins that um, that we spray, which by the way I've used a lot in organic farming. So it's 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 a fallacy that organic farming does not use pesticides. It actually does use pesticides. Right. Is that they are natural in yeah. inverted commas? And usually they're worse than what's used by uh, companies that aren't organic, uh, right? I would disagree with that. I would say BT is a fantastic pesticide. Yeah. It's very very species specific. It doesn't harm the environment. Um, I think it's a fantastic way of doing it. It's just that these genetically modified crops have BT in them naturally, like naturally, artificially, that we've put it in. And they're considered to be a bad thing. But if you have an organic crop and you just take an airplane and spray the whole farm with the same insecticide, it's considered okay. But that's a different argument. So um, uh, you could sit down and look at this um, toxin and understand how it operates, the Mm. mode of action, and then try to predict what might happen and look in nature for resistance. It's the second way of doing it. And the third way of doing it, which is called association mapping, is to look at a population that's resistant and look at a population that is sensitive, so normal, and basically do sequencing, DNA sequencing, so find out every single base, A, T, C, and G, in their DNA blueprint, and compare them. Mm. Find out what is common amongst the ones that are resistant, Mm. but different with the ones that are sensitive. Mm. And this could be your, um, your predicted uh, genes that cause this resistance to happen. Right. So you find genes that are different in the resistant. Uh, uh, that all the resistant ones have this same same sort of gene that they've yeah. kind of. Uh, but it's always absent in the ones that are sensitive. Right. Okay. Um, so we call that association mapping. Um, so you have your candidate gene approach. So have some um, um, idea of what it might be. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look for it in nature. We have the association mapping, which is the one we just talked about. You know, we look at things that are resistance versus the ones that are sensitive, and look what's common and different between them. Mm-hmm. And and the other way was um, uh, do a, an experiment in the lab mm. where we basically select for it mm-hmm. and look. So I guess I should say those are the two main ways, mm. and you can either do it in the lab, in an artificial scenario, or you can use a natural population. Mm. Okay, so that was one of the questions. You, you, you said you spent five years doing a PhD, and it's different to what we have here, which is about three years, three and a half years, where the government's really kind of restricted it. These days, yeah, it has yeah. become. So you, that was one of the questions you try to answer. What other questions? Um, or were you just focused mainly on that? Okay, so my science questions were really bioinformatics so it was more about technology development. Oh, um, okay. So, so you were testing whether bioinformatics could utilize to answer these questions you're thinking like about chemists um <laughs> i was not testing anything i was creating capability uh, i was making software and oh, i was trying to make the software that works as better as everything else right. so i was finding identifying bottlenecks yes. uh, so money was being spent on overcoming the wrong bottlenecks i found so you should be actually be investing in data analysis and data management and um better algorithms right. at, um at answering those questions. So it's very hard when you apply for a grant in Australia because most assessors are like you. They'll say, what's your science question? What are you trying to achieve? What's the basic thing that you will find? Well, actually, the basic thing I will find is that I'll allow you to do your work better. And it's very hard to get a grant or get funding from from the federal government to achieve major breakthroughs in the way we do science if you don't want to solve the same problem you're trying to solve 20 years ago. Yeah. 
And it's funny, but the industry is exactly the opposite. So the industry actually knows that it wants to solve problems. They do not care if you've done this for 20 years or not. They just want to know if your skill can address a bottleneck. And for people like me, this actually has worked really well. So the industry has been very supportive of the way we do our science. Mm. And there's, there's this conflict between the ARC, the Australian Research Council, and the industry. And, you know, people say, oh, you should be funding basic science. And the industry says, no, no, you should be finding fixing problems. But the truth is actually somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, we need to find basic science in order to know where we're going to be in 20 years. Yeah. But at some point, we cannot keep on funding the same thing we've been funding for 20 years. Yeah. Um, like the evolution of color patterns is a very interesting topic. Not everyone should be doing it, and certainly not for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and certainly shouldn't be more prestigious if you're allowed to work on one topic. Mm. Uh, versus someone who is creating the skills that allow you to move this topic faster. Um, for example, think about this Illumina technology and this next generation sequencing, DNA sequencing technologies. They've, they're the culmination of optics, uh, physics, chemistries, and biologicals, and nanomaterials. Mm. Uh, all this basic science was happened in order to allow these materials mm. to occur and these innovations to occur. Happened 20 years ago. Mm. But then it took a group of technologists that actually put those things together to make to have impact. Each one of those individual components would have been not useful by itself, mm. or it would not have been as useful by itself. It's only when you bring them together. And the people that brought them together would not have been able to do it unless the basic science had happened 20 years ago to allow that right. to happen. So it's an inter uh, you need both things to happen and it's very hard to educate the public and politicians and scientists yeah. uh, that you need both yeah no, that that's so true i mean we've had if you're familiar with meow ludo you know that dude that put the apple chip card on his in his hand yep the yeah. apple card on his thumb why that's... didn't he not just put in as a ring yeah. <laughs> well apparently he said because you can take rings off and you can lose them so depends if you're married or not <laughs> <laughs> that's true i think uh, he was in an open relationship i don't know so he's living life you know <laughs> But uh, he was, yeah, he was saying, I think, a similar thing to you. Um, and, and there is a, a push towards, at, at least in our university, towards commercialization, where they they want something out of, out of your research. And, and like, I realize this because I'm, I'm applying for a PhD scholarship and I look at the research interest that the university has and I recognize, oh, no, mine's super basic science. Like, I'm looking at, like, fundamental processes that are happening inside the cell. It's also like te technology development, a bit similar to perhaps um, what you did in your PhD. I'm trying to optimize and develop the spectroscopy technique to enable us to do what we need to do to answer questions down the track. But I recognize like, even though that's important, like sometimes people don't see the utility of it. And because of that, I may not even get a scholarship out of it. Uh, the ranking doesn't happen by the people that look at industry impact. Uh, I think what they do um, is, so they have these four different streams and um, the the basic research that we oh, you do. you have to fit in one of those. You have streams. to fit in those. Yeah. And if you don't. That's a challenge for your creativity. Yeah. No, that's true. Uh, you can sit down and creatively apply yourself. Yeah. You, you can creatively uh, imagine where your project will fit in one of those aspects. Um, and it's a very good exercise. Oh. Um, if I remember correctly, what do you remember the four streams? Uh, oh shit! It was like health. It was like translation. 
uh, I forget what they. This is I, sounds I like, like health. You could fit into health. Yeah, well, that's that's how I. Yeah, that's how I like I, I put it through. You know, stem cells, regenerative therapies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's see how that goes. <laughs> okay, so but it's a good question. Like, should our university be focusing mm-hmm. on what it can achieve best, or should it be like a free for all? Yeah. Um, and I think within the the financial environment that we have we i mean we only have as a university about eight million dollars a year for research really it's tiny eight million dollars a year that's how much the federal government is willing to give us Mm. Uh, maybe double that if you include the phd scholarships but when it comes to outside the scholarships we only have eight million dollars across the entire university Uh, the rest of the funding comes from uh, the state government and from student fees Um, so is it fair for the undergraduates to subsidize research? That's something to think about. I obviously think, yes, it is fair for the undergraduate to subsidize research because if I was an undergraduate that want to have a degree that counts, I would like someone who is an extremely good researcher and a really good person in their field mm. to teach me. I wouldn't want someone who belongs in high school. Mm. Um, so I don't want a teacher. I want a professor. Mm. I want to be inspired. I don't want to be taught. Um, in University of Edinburgh, we basically were expected to listen to a lecture, be inspired, then off you go to the library and you learn by yourself. There was no such thing as a question like, is this going to be in the exam? Mm. Because the professor would say, no, nothing I tell you will be on the exam. But you should know it. No, it was it was about inspiration. I mean, okay. obviously there were some lectures like biochemistry where, you know, this is Krebs cycle. Yeah. But I mean, but you should know it as in like for the sake of learning itself. Mm. No is a very strong word. No means memorize. Um, in Edinburgh in biology, especially in evolutionary biology, it was more about understanding right. and being aware. Um, so, for example, obviously you should learn your mathematics, you should learn your biochemistry, you should learn all those different skills, you should learn how to pipette, you should learn what PCR is. But at the grand scheme of things, if you forget something, you can just Google it. That's right. It's about you being comfortable with knowledge mm. that you need to take that on board. And that should be probably your first year in undergraduate. Thereafter, the whole idea is that you get inspired, is that you seek to learn. You seek to get the library and open that textbook and read it and say, okay, this bit I understand, but my textbook is five years old. What happened the last five years old, five years? You go into the Google Scholar and you try to understand what happened. And that independent learning is what I think science degrees really teach you and what should be teaching you. Right. Um, And it, it can be really hard being a student in an environment where that is not supported, where you're just expected to memorize and then pass an exam. Uh, It can be really hard as a professor trying to teach a group of kids that um, the other professors don't acknowledge that. So they're not in an environment of self-learning. So the kids say, okay, what is going to be on the exam? Just tell us what's going to be on the exam. Um, And you tell them, well, okay, here's the exam paper. Does that help you? Would that help you get a job? Do you all want high distinctions? You can just get high distinctions like candy. It doesn't really matter. Um, At the end of the day, your employer would not even look at your paper. Human resources might. They might filter you through your grades in the very beginning. But when you get an interview, you'll be asked questions and they will try to understand how you behave. Mm. And they will want to know if you can independently learn. If you can be a member of a team Mm -hmm. and if you can be a a positive contribution to that team and if you can... uh, bring something new 
that you didn't have before. Mm. If you cannot learn, then why should a company hire you? You're mm. going to be obsolete in two years. Mm. Your knowledge is going to be obsolete in two years, therefore so will you. They might also just fire you and replace you with someone else. Yeah. But if you can learn independently, if you can actually become, um, innovate yourself, then you are a major asset to the team, a major asset to that company. Mm. You will immediately be on the top of the list. Yeah. And that's what university education really should be all about and is most of the time all about, is about giving you the fuel and the support and the system and the libraries and, and the access to the professors to let you become that thing. Um, and I, I totally agree with you, but if you're a professor that didn't get a GPA of seven, you'll definitely say that. <laughs> uh, so I think there's definitely some geniuses out there, and sure. I'm not one of them. But um, there's certain genius out there that can be creative and sure. learn and sure. still get a seven out of seven. Yeah. So I wouldn't knock them down immediately. But I totally agree with you that creativity and problem solving is is yeah. a major assets, and you can showcase them yeah. through your grades. And um, but but also. I think you can showcase them through doing different challenges, like going outside. Like one, my colleague Alex and I, like we did an undergrad in biochemistry and molecular biology, but we both did like philosophy. I did programming. I did Chinese, Japanese, or psychology on the side because I think those things just push you um, and and kind of give you the confidence that hey, even if I'm out of my comfort zone. I can learn this. Yeah, that's one way of saying it. The other way of saying it is that you're not focused. <laughs> <laughs> or you're just really interested in a lot of things. Or you yeah. have too much free time. That's <laughs> uh, I mean, we should all, all also remember that a lot of um, students here have to work. Yeah. Or they come from difficult families. Oh, for sure. Or they're the first person in their family to go to uni. Yes. So a lot of the challenges they're overcoming may not be academic. So mm. totally moving outside your comfort zone is really important. But sometimes that comfort zone just being at uni yeah you're actually doing that oh, totally, yeah. um, so as a, as, a, as a professor it's really hard to pick those people and say okay i should be more supportive to this person and less supportive to that mm. person without actually knowing anything mm. right there um, most of the time i don't even remember their names mm -hmm. um i'm very bad with my memory anyway generally so um it's really hard to have that one-to-one -one relationship mm and be a good researcher mm. and be a good writer and mm. be a good mentor to your PhD students um, and do science outreach. It, it's, you know, it's a 60, 70 hour uh, a week job. Um, but it is up to the student, as you say, to actually bring themselves forward and engage. Um, I wouldn't think that it's necessary for someone to show me that they're moving outside the comfort zone. Mm. Um, I will also avoid the cliche of, oh, they just need to show that they try. Um, I don't agree with that. Um, obviously, trying is important, but I think it's the most important thing that you will learn from undergraduate university is to find out what you're not good at. Um, so if you acknowledge that you're just not good to do this particular thing, but you're good at this other thing, I will have a lot of respect for that. And I will definitely help you pass to make sure that you didn't you don't get uh, penalized for having picked the wrong thing. Mm. And I will help you switch to something else. For example, you may decide you want to become a philosopher mm. instead of a biochemist. Mm. That's that's your prerogative. And um, you know, high school. What do you know? You're you're seventeen year, seventeen years old. How mm. could you have known yeah. that you wanted to be a philosopher? Right. Um, and I think the way we've done undergraduate. Um, university systems here in Australia prevents that from happening. 
these days. Uh, University of Melbourne used to have a general degree, doesn't really have any more. Uh, America still has them, so you major in something, but you don't have to decide until a couple of years in. Mm. But this whole Bologna agreement that we basically have, the three-year bachelor's and two-year master's and all that, this whole structure is really is to churn people through. Mm, I agree. And it's, it's, a, it's a major problem for us as academics mm. where we try to get an 18-year-old and tell them, okay, here's the things you need to learn because of the thing you picked. Mm. But what did you know when you were 16 or 17 and you picked this thing? Yeah. So maybe one aspect if people are listening and they're thinking about uni is to actually not go to university at 18 mm. take a bit of time off uh, think about some things and then come back when you're 20 21 and then when you and your brain is more mature as well yeah. so you can absorb things easier uh, financially you're a bit more mature uh, you feel safer um, and you're there because you want to and you're studying the thing you really want to rather mm. than being pushed right now, of course, a lot of parents, if they're listening to this podcast, they'll become, say, okay, there's no way I'm going to let my kid, they definitely have to have a degree, but the parents should remember that a plumber makes more money than a biologist, yeah. <laughs> even on their first year. Oh, that's, that's funny. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, expecting 17-year-olds to know what they want to do for the rest of their life, is, is that's, that's, that's not, yeah. So I was different. So if you want to have a counterexample, is I was completely the opposite. I was... Um, when I was, I can't remember, I was four or five years old when uh, Indiana Jones came out and, you know, dad asked me what I want to become. And I said, I want to become an archaeologist. It was, uh, it was the lost ark. Um, and then, of course, what I didn't know is archaeology actually involves sitting underneath the sun and looking at bones all the time rather than running around <laughs> and uh, solving, uh, uh, having adventures and solving crimes. Um, but I always wanted to go into that science capability. I always wanted to play with expensive toys. Um, and then I was volunteering in a research team when I was 16, 17, 17, 17 to 21 in Greece with looking at chameleons. So I was doing basically field ecology and looking at chameleons and a bit of science education uh, to tourists yeah. about that. So bird watching, chameleon watching and uh, collecting data and educating tourists. And then I realized I want to study evolutionary biology. Why did I want to study evolutionary biology? It's because I loved story. It's the storytelling. So there's an evolutionary biology textbook that sits over there. And it's one of the best textbooks that I've seen that have been written. So it's by Douglas Fujiyama, a New York-based professor who um, just writes very eloquently. Mm. And if you think about evolutionary biology is... So there's two things. One is we try to understand how, the, the, how nature evolves, how nature has happened to occur. We let the biochemists figure out how it works. Mm. We are caring about how it became mm. this way. And the other thing is every conclusion we have is tentative because we can never prove that it really happened this way. Mm. We can just be 99.9% .9 certain. It's the same with climate change. We can never prove everything unless we have pure biology biogeochemical information for everything in a closed system in a jar mm. and then we can control humans as well so sociology um, but we can be pretty darn confident and then it's all about putting things together synthesizing different strands of evidence and from different disciplines for so, so for someone with my scattered brain remember i was telling you you're, you're probably unfocused that's because you remind me of me so being creative being unfocused being able to learn lots of different disciplines and bringing them together into this context 
of how things became to be really attracted me. Mm. And that's what I decided to do. And I was not very good at pipetting, uh, partly because I don't have the short-term memory that I should be having. Uh, I will always forget if I put this liquid in or not. Oh, tell um, me about it. <laughs> um, and I wasn't very good at mathematics, so I didn't... Like, my brother is just an amazing macroeconomist. He's amazing with math, mm. um, but I wasn't. And I... And I realized that actually what I'm, I'm good at is being creative and synthesizing and bringing things together. Mm. And I needed a skill to pay the bills and that became computers, uh, which I've been having since I was eight years old. I still remember my Spectrum ZX with little tape that sounds like a fax machine. When you phone a fax machine, it goes... Really? That's how computers used to communicate. With how, this long, noise. how long ago was that? Oh, I think... So that was... Uh, 30 years ago, 28 Whoa, years ago. Oh, OG computers. Yeah, that was fun. That was learning basic. Oh. Uh, so so you, you talked about... Stranger um, Things. Stranger Things. He goes into bed. It was really funny, that part. Oh, yeah, of course he's going to write a computer program in two minutes. <laughs> and of course he knows exactly what the computer pro- program should be. Right. Um, That's funny, yeah. yeah. Good luck putting like the line of code that you need to put. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, so you you've you've had like a you yeah you're a little bit like me as well. You, you have a lot of different interests, and that's probably one of the reasons why you do the podcast as well. So for the folks who don't know, um, Alexi does a podcast called Science in a Cup. Why don't you just tell us what it's about how, and and how you came up? With yeah, it? thanks for the plug. Uh, Science in a Cup is where I interview a scientist that explains a word of a phrase that they're quite passionate about. Uh, for example, ecosystem, photosynthesis. Uh, sometimes the um, the clip is quite short, so three to five minutes, mm-hmm. where basically usually it's a student that explains what they do. Sometimes it's a bit longer, about 15, 20 minutes, where they, a professor explains the entire field and what it means to them. Mm. And we always try to plug some kind of outcome, societal outcome, so why, why should your mother care? Mm-hmm. And the podcast is meant to be about basically telling your parents what you do. Why should they care? Yeah. That's our target audience. That's pretty cool. So how did you come up with this? And we'll probably end on this because unbeknownst to me, we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. I suppose. Yeah. How did you come up with this, with the podcast and why did you get, decide to get into it? So if, if, if people don't know, there's an amazing um, podcast by Wendy Zuckerman. Uh, Science Versus. Science Versus. And uh, she's an amazing lady and journalist and science journalist and she used to be in australia used to do things for the catalyst and then then the abc mm-hmm. uh, before basically being uh, following the brain drain to new york uh, because the abc at the time was not really supporting her with long-term contracts mm-hmm. and um, that's when i realized that we need more podcasts and i really like her format where she basically explains one science topic mm. And at the same time, I was doing my three-minute thesis engagement with some students, and I was listening to what they were saying. I was like, it would be amazing if we could reach a broader audience, mm. and if it was a bit more freeform. It was more of a conversation. And the third thing that happened was I wanted both myself and others to learn more about engagement. How do I talk to the media? Mm. How do I train myself? And the best way to train is just do it. Just do it, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, that, That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, Science Versus is a really good podcast. I've, I've been listening to a few. Um, but yeah, no, that's really nice. So we we've, we share a few things in common. Um, a passion to 
communicate science is one of them which is really cool um for the folks at home uh listeners check out science versus it's on itunes stitch up is it on stitch as well i'm sure you've put it everywhere um so science in a cup or science versus sorry science in a cup science versus is everywhere including spotify yes. itunes and science in a cup is on itunes and stitcher and, and stitcher yeah and sorry. everywhere you get po- podcasts that's it similar to blab codes um thank you so much for your time alexi i wish we could keep going i mean i feel like we could talk for another five hours but um we have to keep in mind the, um, the, the time constraints and i'm getting hungry well. <laughs> i'm sure so are you yeah thank you so much for being on the podcast i really do appreciate it thank you for inviting me